This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project where I talk with artists about their work and their lives. The ultimate goal here is to give listeners a better understanding about the experiences and people behind the artwork. My name is Joseph Hart, and I'm the producer and facilitator of this series. These recordings are casual, straight on, and unscripted. In this episode, I speak with painter Ryan Wallace. Ryan's paintings are more constructed rather than traditionally painted. He assembles together his canvases out of multiple pieces. He uses scraps of old paintings and window screens and different types of tapes and other debris he finds on his studio floor. His work has a unique touch and calibration to it and can shift between feeling sinister or endearing. Ryan is also co-founder of Halsey McKay Gallery, which is out in East Hampton at the end of Long Island in New York. He recently opened a show of new paintings at Susan Inlet Gallery, which is here in New York City. Here we are at his home a couple weeks after his show had opened. Yeah, put that on vibrate. No, I'm just going to turn it off. Turn it off. Turn it back on for 172 text messages. You have 172 text messages? No, but uh, <laughs> probably okay. this. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge a couple of things before we start. Okay. Um, one is that we've we known each other for quite a while. Do you know how long we've known each other? Almost 20 years. 21 years. 21. I did the math last oh, night. Oh, yeah, 95, not 99. Yeah. So I think that's important to mention because this might... It could be good. It could be bad. It's going to come through, I think. Right. Um, the other thing that is worth mentioning is that this is an, an inherent paradox. We're talking about visual art. Yes. Something that we see with our eyes but this is just audio. So, um, and I'd also like to assume that, let's, let's sort of assume that we're, some people will know your work that's listening to this. I'd like to think a majority of people don't. Okay. So, I'd like you to take a what moment. What rock have they been living under? Right. I, I, think it, I think it's important that you try, that, that you describe your work to those people who have never seen it before. Hmm. In general, or like, should we just talk about what's up now to keep it? Because there's a couple think, different things that always go on. Right. I think in general, in like general. a broad stroke right now. <clears throat> okay. A broad stroke right now would be, it looks abstract mm-hmm. for someone that doesn't know a lot about abstract painting. I try and have something for them to latch onto that feels familiar. So like the last body of work while... It was made up of kind of marked canvas and fabrics that were made a lot. I would say they made linear like moves across the canvas, a lot of lines. But people tend to see aerial views in them or think of them as like a piece of granite or some kind of stone. So they always have kind of a touch to the natural world, whether or not I seek to do that. So, and with the current things, I would say that they look like bits kind of floating in space, but those somehow feel familiar, I think, beyond just abstract painting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's be clear. These are paintings we're talking about. Yeah. They're okay. paintings. Okay. And uh, sometimes I make sculptures that are cubes. Yeah. Why, why the interest in sculpture? I mean, a, a number of artists work in few different ways um why is painting not enough why are these sculptures as well 
I think it, it originally came about as a way for me to get back to representation where the work was completely abstract, but I was able to kind of, I was in, they, it all kind of at the time had like kind of a mystical quality. It was these like centrally composed, like things that looked like they were emanating from the middle. And while it was slightly tongue in cheek, it looked like mandalas or something of that nature. And I would like, I had at this, my studio at the time had been a sculptor studio and there were all of these rocks laying around and I just started arranging them into like, mini Stonehenges that I thought was funny. Mm-hmm. Was it kind of a studio game? <clears throat> it was at first. And it was it was just impulse, really. Like, mm-hmm. these were laying around, so I painted them white. And then I arranged them, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Right. And I had, I'm had i kind of always interested in how things replicate. And I at kind of almost as like an intro to sculpture class, I was like, well, let's... Uh, try and make these rocks perfectly over and over again because it's like the most futile exercise because mm-hmm. if you google like latex mold making the first thing that comes up is like how to make a rock so that you can hide your key in it outside of your house or Jimi hendrix's penis yeah or jimmy's wang um the and at the time caster <laughs> yeah i'm referring I know to exactly okay. what you're talking about um and at the time i a friend of a friend was like a master mold maker. He does like the museum of natural history displays and stuff. So I went to him just for like a quick exercise. So a lot, a lot of things that happen, happen by like circumstance like that. Right. And then I just thought it was funny to kind of, cause he was making these really intricate elaborate displays. He's like, why do you want to make these? And I, yeah. I thought there was something in that. Yeah, I think I think the sculpture informs the painting and vice versa. Oh, and now it's like one yeah. to one almost. Yeah. It's like yeah. And it's part of your working. It's part of how these things come together. Yep. Right. Um uh one of the things I like to do when I'm teaching um to help sort of communicate the idea at hand is is use cooking metaphors or food metaphors. So for instance, in the middle of a critique, I'll uh, I'll suggest, uh, you know that that pizza's not quite done. Put it back in the oven. Mm-hmm. Or it needs more of this topping or more of that topping. Um, so I thought last night of a few food metaphors for your work. This isn't to further help describe your work. And I wonder if you, you'll co-sign or throw these out. You want to hear a few of them? Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is an, an organic kale salad that has not been washed with a raspberry vinaigrette. Co-sign or throw it out? A- accurate. Co-sign. Accurate. What about a seaweed donut with a penny-infused ganache? I'm not going to co-sign on that. <laughs> You're not going to co-sign on the donut? No. Um, a Scottish lasagna. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. That's Scottish good. lasagna's in. Uh, what about beef stroking off? Pass. Good. That was Anika's idea. <laughs> um, Dirty. Yeah. Um, one of the other things I think I, I always love hearing artists talk about how their work has developed over the years. And because we've known each other for so long, I've seen this happen kind of in real time. But I wonder if, if you could um, reflect a little bit on how you got from point A to point B to point C in, 
in your practice and in the work that you make because a lot of people don't know that you're you're a skillful painter like a traditional painter yeah. you can paint the figure yep um and i always was impressed with that when we were in school together i was so bored with trying to replicate the what i saw how how it was supposed to be but you're pretty good at that um but now your yeah, work is it. is quite a departure from that um can you talk about that evolution that development yeah for sure and i would say i mean yeah it looks like i threw it all out the window but having that like northern light classical portraiture training i think really makes them feel the way they feel and kind of land the way they do i always as you know i run a gallery with a woman who's a trained photographer mm -hmm. so running the gallery with her has been like a crash course in painting Right. We're going to talk about that gallery later. Yeah. yeah. But just to just to talk to kind of this first. Um, sure. And you can I try and and I think now she can tell that, like, you can tell looking at certain abstract paintings like, oh, that person can gr draw the skeleton like wickedly. And some you can tell like, all right, this guy's kind of feeling around and the energy comes from kind of a lack of skillful rendering. Mm -hmm. And I think that all of that while it's not on the surface now is definitely in the DNA of the paintings now. Like, mm -hmm. um, but how it happened was, yeah, I mean, at school I wanted to learn how to paint the figure. It's something I was always interested in. And like, while drawing kind of came naturally as a kid in high school, you don't really have oil paint. Like I had some, but it wasn't like sufficient. I was always curious, like from like looking at D and D album cover or uh, book covers to like, uh, like Vermeer, like how mm -hmm. how does that happen? And I was just wanted to learn it, and it was like a practical thing to learn rather than, as Tony Janella would have said, gluing toy soldiers together. Um, so that led to, while at the same time studying illustration, which was basically narrative picture making. Mm -hmm. That was kind of where my focus was. And then slowly over time, skipping over kind of illustration career stuff for now, um, it went from being narrative pictures with a lot of, with the background kind of standing in for like spirit or emotion or something, then kind of getting bored with how that was like a closed circle that you would look at a painting and you would say, okay, this is about these three things happening and wanting to open in that up more. So kind of the people became buildings for a while or trees and then the background all the while being activated. And then just kind of slowly the background came to the foreground and became right. the most interesting thing for me. Right. Um, yeah, it seemed pretty natural. It seems natural. Yeah. And it's common for people as they move through their 20s into their 30s, especially art students, that their work is going to shift. Our goals change. Yeah. Our intentions change. We change as people, and it makes sense to me that the work is going to change too. And I think kind of what we were surrounded by, which I never felt, I felt totally connected, like the skateboard culture and mm -hmm. all of the art surrounding that. Like while that culture was so much a part of me, I never felt totally connected to the art as a maker but that's what was there and what i was most around so i think that i was like trying to push that into the work in some way right but it just never felt totally uh, yeah i think like i could never make a chris johansson work though right. i love it but like it's just not me oh man Th did you see his new anti-hero boards no no graphics yet. so good um yeah i feel like 
yeah, it's a natural progression to want to, to want to change and evolve. And it's also, I think it's how we learn. If I'm yeah. not one of these guys and, and I'm going to assume you're, you're sort of in the same realm as like, I don't learn by doing the same thing over and over again. I mean, there's slight tweaks and it's slow, but in order to learn and get new ideas, I got to keep like moving things around yeah. and trying new things. I think that's really important. Yeah, it's a slippery slope, though, because I think sometimes, like, you don't make what could be, like, the, the like, masterpiece of the body of work or whatever, because mm -hmm. it's like the show happens, and, like, they've gone out into the world, and then you're kind of trying to learn and trying to get to the next thing, but, like, those could maybe have gotten better. So right. Sometimes, but I also kind of like that. Right. That, like, or, like, our, like, what we're looking at or who we're excited about sort of sort of seeps in a little bit we've had this conversation before where you've, you've zapped me um uh, uh an image of the thing you're working on like does this look like anything do you recognize this oh right i mean is that a is that a a, a conscious thing while you're working uh at, at this point i don't even think so for a while it was really at the foreground like editing and it um which I think there's a lack of out there right now. Yeah, a lot of copycatting, um, yeah. borrowing. And that it's accepted, which is like totally crazy. But yeah, um, yeah no, I think, and I think that come, that's a generational thing, I think, too, where in like music or in graffiti or in skateboard style, like if you were derivative of somebody else, that was the worst possible thing that you could do. Right. Like it was all about originality on like your own sui generis voice. And that, for better or worse, I think it can be debilitating, too, but was always like, oh, man. And there were times when it was like, oh, this is like so-and-so or so-and-so, and I just wouldn't let it out there. That I think was healthy, but it was hard, too. It's, it's impossible not to let that in. Yeah, but I mean, now... art history is that. Yeah. It's, it's this comes from that. I, I think I also people think get there's less of a problem if it's like... If it looks like Lucian Freud, then if it looks like your buddy down the hall. Right. Overt stealing is a yeah. problem. I mean, I would say my current show now looks like things that I never thought of as an influence, like Moreau or Kandinsky or that were like, when I looked at them, I was like, what the hell? Like we're in modernism. It's, I mean, it's really cool to think about the, the stuff that you made 15 years ago relative to the stuff now. You know, you used paint and brushes yep. primarily. There was always collage stuff, though. There right. was maybe the two years work. where it was like... I guess I'm thinking about when I used to literally paint next to you, mm -hmm. and you'd be on an easel with yep. a giant canvas with a palette yep. and paintbrushes. Like, look up the definition of an artist in the dictionary, yeah. and there's a picture of you. And there now, is probably only like ten or twenty of those paintings, though. Right, but I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm I want to compare it to yeah. now. Yeah. Whereas your work is there's there is brush work. You're like using brushes, but yeah. not in that way. You're working on the floor mostly, right? Yeah. Floor to wall, floor to wall. Yeah. Um. And so the labor is different. The thinking is different. Definitely. And. I have this theory because I think, you know, there's some simpatico with how I work yeah. to how you work as well. But this idea that our 
hands are smarter than our brains. So, I mean, I wonder if, did you put brushes down because you knew how to use them so well and, and you wanted to get a different type of mark? So yeah. you picked up this, this like using debris method to sort of, to like almost tie one hand behind your back to get Definitely. a different type of mark? Yeah, it, where, because I think, I'd say both of us really have a very specific hand where you have like a nice line that's very airy, but I feel like I'm really heavy handed and like, which is why painting always felt better than drawing. And it's always a way to get out of, so I became interested in like the removal of the hand to kind of get away from my tendencies. And like the typical thing to look at was like, like advent of the silk screen or of like now digital processes, but those didn't interest me kind of because of, just the aesthetic of stuff I grew up around and was interested in. And so collage was a way to get out of that because you could kind of cover a large area and then kind of make the shape out of that. But then that got too like fussy for me. Yeah. Collage allows you not to commit right away. It does. Which is good and bad. It is good and bad. Cause it, yeah, for uh, many reasons, yeah. even like the like really layered collage paintings I was making, they were, the like narrative stuff from when we were sharing a mm -hmm. studio. I always swore I could make those paintings like five times as fast if I just painted them. Right. But the marks wouldn't be kind of as interesting. Yeah, you have to sort of throw efficiency out at yeah. a certain point. Yeah. And it's also... Because it's not... It doesn't connect to what you're trying to achieve. Right. Right. And so now... It's like kind of a really organic approach where... This stuff just happens on its own accord and working on the floor really opened up this space where when you're in front of you, when you're on the wall or on an easel or whatever, it's uh -huh. right. You're right over the thing. And like, you can noodle it and like it's right at your nose, but on the floor, you can't see this stuff as closely. And it, it happened by accident. Really. It happened kind of with the last body of work where like I set out to make, to move those mandala pictures into overall compositions, kind of mm -hmm. like Pollock and Mind or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I did them how I had been working, and it looked exactly like I thought it was going to look, but it was like super tight and like yeah. kind of irritating. And then I just like wasn't totally satisfied, and then I was just starting one on the floor, like starting to make an arrangement that I thought I would put on the wall. And it just happened out like as a large painting that had like way more open space. The shapes were different size relationships than any of the stuff that had been on the wall. And that was just really exciting. Yeah, you can't get that stuff if you were to like sit down and try and do it. No. It no, has not to at all. yeah. It has to you have to let that accident take place. And or that, that error. And that I think pushes like life into the work where abstraction you're always kind of dancing around like decoration. Like are you just making this decorative thing? And hopefully, like, that's not what it's about, but there's always an element of that to it. And where pushing this kind of, like, scrubby, like, marks of, like, your feet and your studio and dirt into it, I think, mm -hmm. just puts a little more, like, life into it. It shows the act of making a little more that, like, whether or not the viewer deems it as, like, pretty or whatever, it has, like, a little bit more history in it. And that yeah, interests me. I agree. The other thing I would, I would add, or the, the observation I have about the way you work and maybe the way I work, is that we have, okay, one, we have this, we're, like, putting away the tools that we sort of know how to use. The brush, the paint. Yeah. 
as I refer to your, you know, very traditional figure painting. The other thing is making these things in this way is a lot more free. It feels better as opposed to sitting and trying to like paint this thing to look like the thing. There's a, there's oh, a sense of sure. freedom that comes out of not knowing how this thing is going to take place or come together. Yeah, through this process that's a personality type thing. I think that like Matt Kenny or Ben Blatt would be like, right, right. Those <laughs> guys are technicians. That awful. Those guys are technicians. Yeah, it's like you know, it's all of it's psychology, it's control, it's power over the thing you're working. Yeah. On. Um, I would also say that that has shifted. Where right after we had our first kid, and for the first few years there, I ruled out all of that stuff where it was it was still textural but it was all like those tablet paintings or like those omega point paintings it was all like no composition was either in the center or at the edges so my whole time in studio was just like executing and like relishing in the happy accidents that happened within those parameters but there was no like real freedom and no like kind of existentialist staring just because of time and like mental capacity and that was great but now i'm kind of back to and i intentionally sought to do it but now it's that like staring maneuvering slow really slow so that was like do you ever go to studio and not work pretty rarely right because you don't just don't have time uh i mean it happens but like it's not intentional (laughs) sort of the circle back to your sculptures and I mentioned asked if if it was sort of a studio game do you have any systems in your studio for when a painting is giving you a problem and you need to like do an exercise or a game to resolve that problem do you have anything anything in place um but I mean leaving and just like putting the thing aside for sure Uh uh-huh but lately I've kind of been trying to because of the nature that the things can be torn back apart and like just bailed on that leads to marks, unexpected marks that are interesting. So lately I've been trying to just like ruin the thing if I have to. And like that helps make a better painting in the end. It's really backwards. And I know the like headspace you're talking about and it's awful, but like, I don't have a, other than leaving, but I've been trying to embrace like ruining the things recently. I've heard of people like they reach a point where the piece is so problematic that they start asking themselves, what would I absolutely not do right now? I'm going to do that. Yeah. Do the opposite. Do the opposite. Um, What about, I'm sort of. I'd also say it's like my life is kind of built in where like if I'm frustrated, like there's always so many other things that need to be addressed that like I'll just do one of those. Right. The romantic in me is like, oh, it's not working today, but I'm in studio and I'm going to read this book and I need to be in this space and around the work. But the reality is I got a kid to pick up from school. I got a kid to drop off at daycare. All these life things, right? Syllabus. Syllabus. Yeah. Work on a syllabus or a lesson plan. Um, I'm curious about quitting on paintings, like mm-hmm. the economics of when to quit, you know, economics relative to like how and why we make choices, not necessarily, you know, we think about economics as right. money, but is, is there ever a moment where, you know, 
you know, fuck you, I'm done. I quit on you on this particular painting. At like, is there is there things that lead up to that moment? Specific things? Um, yeah, because I think the whole nature of the way I work now is like call and response and intuition. So if the thing doesn't look how it's supposed to look, it just doesn't. But again, like I'm at a point now where like, fuck you painting. I can take it off the stretchers and cut it in half and then I'm excited. It's like a nice, and I've learned really slowly and resistantly. I've learned to kind of embrace that like that can happen and it's hard, but it also happened in like figure painting where like sometimes the best part of your painting is ruining the whole thing. So that, is hard because you'll think a painting is like really successful because it has this area that you're so excited about. But if the whole thing sucks, the whole thing sucks. Right. And that actually kind of led to the sculptures in a funny right. way. Right. Another thing is sometimes, and I'm sure this happens to you, is someone will come to your studio for a visit or a hang, and that thing that you absolutely hate or dislike is right there. And like, oh my God, this one's amazing. Yeah. And then suddenly, like, a chemical is released in my brain. Like, maybe I'm, and you start second guessing yourself and like try and see what they're seeing. And then maybe you go back into it. I just learned to trust it because even if I don't like it, and I think working at the gallery has helped that because like, I'll see someone show in a way that's so clear to me is like the best thing. And I can see that they're hung up on like something that they love, but it's hurting the overall thing. So I know that like other people's opinions can, because I trust my own in right. terms of other well, people's work. Well, it's important to, to trust your instincts, for sure. That's yeah. one of the things that I really underscore when I'm instructing is, you know, trust your instincts. If it doesn't feel right, that's that's probably a real feeling, and it's your work. Acknowledge that. Adjust. But I also, put it down. Yeah. But I think it's okay to put things into the world that, like, aren't at ease with you sure yeah which way yeah i mean i think it's a thing that you see in other artists all the time you're like man i wish i could leave it alone like that and like learning to embrace that in your own work is hard but important and we you've talked about this in other interviews and such before but you you went to art school yeah do you think it it was a positive experience yeah it was great do you think you'd be where you were without going to art school no well, uh, who knows? Um, it's impossible to say. Yeah. But I, I will. Huh. I've kind of gone back and forth on this. Where I, it's also, I think, different that I only have an undergraduate degree, and not a master's, because I think those two educations are really different. Um, but I mean, I went from like drawing the devil and like. <laughs> clown smoking blunts to like <laughs> maybe something a little more sophisticated you're a graffiti like, artist yeah you identified yeah. it as a graffiti artist yeah that was definitely part yeah. of my makeup yeah spray paint yep outdoors running from the police yeah i um, love it was there a, a like a a pivotal moment in your education a teacher something you read a class that you took that that opened you up in a in a way that like, is in that quiver of important things that make you who you are? I wouldn't say anyone specifically, but I think it was a really nice... And I was, like, it was kind of schizophrenic. As, like, tunnel vision and focused as I was on certain things, 
it was like a really good portraiture painting teacher, a really good kind of teacher who taught like how to interpret text into striking images always kind of rooted around paintings of some sort but there was no there was nothing that i was like oh this is the kind of artist i want to be i think you're a fool to think that if yeah you're, if you're young yeah things change so fast but i will say so get after getting out of school kind of with that background in like skate culture and illustration and like mostly focused almost entirely focused on painting and what paintings could be and those being what I liked in the art world, I really liked, I kind of had a stance that like, you didn't need grad school. You didn't need that type of rhetoric. Where now, seeing kind of like a crop of like half-assed artists just making like decoration get really celebrated that don't have any arts education, I'm like, hmm. Because I feel like we kind of self-educated in one way or the other. Like, yeah discourse and like learning was never far from it wasn't about like commercial enterprise and having seen like what you're studying in school versus and and after school no i mean after school more right and having seen like a bunch of like brainless stuff get like really championed Mm -hmm. from people with no formal education in art training and like what has what has happened in the past hundred years like that you'd be like, oh, why would you do that? That's Robert Rauschenberg. Like, why would you do that? That's like so clearly this artist. I'm not so anti-art education anymore. No, I think education is ultimately a good thing. Yeah. Um, the MFA, on the other hand, I go back and forth on. I mean, I entertained that for a little while. Yeah. Mostly because I wanted to get a real teaching gig. Right, yeah. But what do you think about the MFA? I mean, you're, you and I don't have MFAs. No. Would you say that we're in the minority? I don't know. No, I think in, it's probably like in 50, the 50. art world that we operate in. I think it's probably like fifty yeah. fifty. A do lot you, of people get in sideways. Do people that have that MFA have an advantage out there? Not long. Is it term, relevant these think. days? I think it's totally relevant. Um, I think MFAs are great. I think the short term thing it's advantage is for is like introduction. Like if you live in Ohio and like just kind of make good work but have no access point like maybe that's shifting now with the internet but i don't think so really because it's still a social apparatus then it like it puts you in a setting with a community that's like built in that probably has studio visits with galleries right after or curators Mm -hmm. and that's crucial besides the learning element of it it's also dependent on which art world you're interested in getting into, right? Yeah. I mean, totally. I thought we, we had this conversation, I think over text recently where you said there's many art worlds, plural. Uh, yeah. So for younger artists that are trying to figure things out, it depends on what art world you want to get into. Yeah. If it's the contemporary art world, you're looking at a handful of this type of school or this city to live in. No. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also, I think broader, art history and like writing exercises that are relevant to any of the art world. Sure. And even within the contemporary art world, there's multiple art worlds. Um, But just in terms of like kind of knowing the place of what you're going to put into the world lands on like the timeline of art history. Like if you're coming at it from nowhere, it's hard to like, you might be, 
a total knockoff and not even know it. And maybe you don't care. And like the commercial market might support that, but that's just not what interests me. Um, I want to go back to something you said about decorative art. I think it was in your critique of younger artists that are just like making decorative work. You know, Edward Albee passed away recently and I saw a pretty great quote from him and I'm going to butcher it. But it was I don't think it's just younger artists making decorative right. work. There's millions of people making Well, I've been, work. you know, I've had cool feedback about your work's a little decorative, man. Um, but Albee said, um, all artworks should have purpose. Otherwise, it's just decoration and a waste of time. Would you agree with that? To an extent. I also don't think there's anything wrong with like He's a playwright, too. Oh, yeah. I, I wonder he if that's... He was a grumpy, grumpy man. Yeah. He was awesome. He used to come into the gallery. And he yeah. owns a Joe Hart work. That's but, right. I, I regret not being able to meet him. Yeah. He was really great, but um, not a sunny personality. <laughs> um, I, I definitely agree with that. That's like the end goal is that you're showing... You're making something that can have the viewer look at the world in a different way or, but there's nothing wrong with beauty. Like there's also nothing wrong with decoration. It's just not kind of what I'm after, but I wouldn't necessarily say that the ability to live with a painting that you love and think is decorative is uh, a waste of time. And you know, I think a lot of artists, painters in particular, wrestle with that idea because most times these things like wind up in someone's yeah it winds up in someone's house it's a piece of interior design or something like that for their living room or for their personal daily enrichment or their storage facility right that's the ideal it's their daily enrichment or these things wind up in a storage facility somewhere i got a picture from uh, a guy that i know that runs a art handling company uh-huh uh, he's like, check it out. And it was uh, one of my paintings wrapped up in plastic in a locker in Florida somewhere. Oh, man. <laughs> I was like, that's great. It's really, Success. it's really, it's really, um, you know, doing what it's supposed to do. It's like. Well, it's safe. They're the caretaker. Of yeah, it. I know. I know. I'm being it's hard on myself. It's not at a yard sale. I'm being, I'm being hard on myself. Um, uh, going back, continuing this, this conversation about education, is there a, do you have any required reading? Any any like a, a book or two that like everyone should read this? You just sent me a picture of that Seth Price oh, book. Fuck Seth Price, yeah. Read but that. that. I wouldn't say everyone. That you need to know a lot about the art world, I think, to get out of it. What? How funny it is. Mm-hmm. No, I would say more like Sid Hartha. <laughs> Sid Hartha. Yeah. What's that? Herman Hess. Okay. Any? Um, any what else? Uh, as it relates to art or just anything, in, in general. just I mean, like an important thing to I read. I thought The Singularity is Near by Ray Kurzweil was really exciting. Yeah, he's an important figure for um, you. I would say The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. I would say The Bible. No, Bible's <laughs> waste of time. Um,. Those are good. They're so yeah. I mean, that's fine. Yeah. It's that's sort of a tropey question, but I. But I'm f- I'm in the middle or towards the end of Fuck Seth Price right now, and I love it. Cool, and that just came out. 
that was at the and last year, maybe. Oh, okay, it's sort of new. Um, um, and then I feel like I'm a believer in this sort of Malcolm Gladwell way of thinking about how we got to where we are. It was a series of um, events, experiences, good timing, supportive people that we came across that led us to where we are here. Like, I, for for example, I could cite the algorithm or person that drew you and I's names out of a hat that set us right. on the same floor of our freshman year dormitory yeah. as Chaos as an important thing that I'm indebted to that led right. us to this moment right here. Mm-hmm. Um, can you cite like who are you in, who are you indebted to? I'm not gonna be able to come up with that on the spot. Jesus Christ, our Lord. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it could be, it could be artists that you find inspiring and very oh, important. Okay, all right. It could um, be people around. No, you. I would say that my best friend when I was five years old, that lived across the street from me, Andy Tallon, and his brother Mark was, I think, five or six years older. No, probably because I was. He was probably ten years older than us, and he turned me on to skateboarding. He at once had a Blues for Allah tapestry on his wall, but also gave me my first Black Flag record. Blues for Allah, that's the dead? Yeah. <laughs> so the kind of imagery that like was in his teenager bedroom, right. like... How old were you? I was five. Okay. Um, when I first met them. So five, we lived across the street from each other, like five through till eight, and then later again. Um, but yeah, he drew... He and so we would all like draw together like that weird like just being exposed to like a cool teenager that was like yeah because you're you don't have any older siblings no no right? so you had no one to sort of show you the show you the way no and he just I mean skateboarding and that culture it was a humongous part of my DNA and like that starts at like five years old from like Mark Tom I'm on the same page I I'm the oldest in my family I sort of looked to neighbors that had or friends that had older brothers and sisters like oh okay yeah yeah those people are and important. just the kind of feeling that you got at that age from seeing like that imagery yeah was super exciting to me and like i remember actually hearing the dead for the first time being really disappointed I feel like the Grateful Dead are on some surge right now i hear them in the grocery store oh really yeah <laughs> someone out there is I don't know. They're, I mean, I hated I'm, I'm that shit them for a long time. time right but um, yeah, at that time, I remember wanting it to sound like Iron Maiden and mm-hmm. hearing it be like, ah. Um, anything else that you're indebted to that you can cite in the moment on the spot? On the Gladwell tip like that? It, it doesn't have to be that that deep. It could be heroes of yours. I don't like know. if I didn't see this guy's work or this woman's work, I don't There's think so I'd many. be where I am it's today. Like, I mean, Raymond Pettibone, everybody says, and that is true. Mm-hmm. Um, you remember the first time you saw his work? Yeah, probably in Mark Tallinn's room. Oh, really? <laughs> like a, yeah, like a, like a, like a poster inch. or a black flag? No, like a seven inch. Black, was it black flag? Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, that's probably all I got on that. That's fine. Without thinking 
That's fine. So this is kind of a, a balance question to that one, and it's one that I have to give credit to Matt Kenny because he asked he asked me, um, and I it stuck with me. Uh -huh. um, but but who do you want to kill? <laughs> and I, again, I think there's right a, now Donald Trump. Yeah, you know, that's that's a that's a that's, that's a, a real answer. That, that's though. a real answer and and almost predictable. I know, but, but um, you got it. It could be it could be that, but also it could be someone. Like Matt asked it in the context of who got who is doing what you are doing or got to it first, and you're like, Shit, oh, the they, thing that you see, and you're like, oh god, yeah, man. or like, I mean, you've probably felt it before, like, yeah, oh, they, no. they arrived, they Be figured beautiful it out, jealousy. like I was on the road there, but they they figured it out first, and now I don't know if I can do that. Um, right now, I'm I'm kind of free of that. Yeah, there are definitely times. I remember when Tomery Dodge did his first like purely abstract you show at kill CRG. Tomary Dodge. I do not want to. <laughs> but I remember walking into that show and being like, "Oh damn, this is like kind of the path I'm on, just a thousand times better." Um. Then there's things that you walk into. I don't know. I, I honestly, I understand the phrasing of the question, but I don't. It's not that. I'm excited to see something and get jealous about it. Um. Not to be like wavy gravy, but it really is like a healthy feeling. Like I love that. Like a successful piece of art should make you feel something. Yeah, right? and I wish I and made sometimes it. Sometimes that's like, like envy or anger or um. I'd say honestly, something else. Not to be like the advertiser, the infomercial for fuck Seth Price, but in reading it, I was like, I have a, th a like text thread with a few other artists that like, this is all the stuff we bitch about and talk about just put together. So fucking great. Like, mm -hmm. so that, um, yeah, I know those moments are great though. When you're like, I wish, and like my, my first thought was, I wish I wrote this. You wish you wrote it. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Um, you know when you you hear a song, a piece of music, and it sort of you feel you feel something inside, and it sort of maybe it makes you know the 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 cliche line is it makes the hair on your neck stand yeah, yeah. up. Do you think visual art has that power? Can a painting make you feel that way? It can. It's pretty rare. Um, I think, but I also think that it's like each kind of outlet, like music is really good at doing that, or like cinema is really good at doing that. Right. And I think the power in painting, sure, it can do that, but its strength is like the opposite of those, where it's in slowing you down and getting you to this headspace that's like totally only happens with painting, I think. So. It's almost an unfair kind of comparison. Yeah, I think I think the human brain has evolved in such a way so that it fires off neurons or whatever yeah. and releases endorphins um based on you know, I think I think it's easier for us to relate to a moving image. And it's also I think as artists harder for us to have a genuine experience with yeah. them other because i'm always like like i saw Rembrandt's the night watch for the first time this year and all i could do is dissect the layers of like oil painting right. i couldn't even look at it as like what it is right. the way that like 
your average person thinks it's like magic, you know. That someone who doesn't know how to, you know. There's always exceptions. There's, there are people that probably that have those feelings. I think they're, they're rare that have like that shivery feeling when they see a painting they like. But it's, I'm sure I wonder it exists. If it's not, I mean, it's just purely dissecting the things in front of me yeah. when I look at them. It's like, I, how is this made? How I'll go on record on saying I've never felt that way yeah. looking at a painting. I mean, I've gotten excited, but I've, I've never been like, like gotten emotional oh that's not true when i saw I'm wondering um the raft of the medusa by jericho uh-huh. i had a visceral emotional response to that i might there's might be i might have some rothko experience like that yeah um it's probably some i came close when i saw I'm, I'm you know this is irresponsible of me but that kid that did the the chained up puppet at Zwerner recently. Oh yeah, Jordan Wolfson. That right. thing made a lot of people feel something. I know, but was it that thing or was it when a man loves a woman? Oh, I don't know. Because I had that experience there, but it was because of Percy Sledge. Hmm. That piece was awesome. But it played on and part of its success was using music for emotional response. Right, right. So it had that other dimension to yeah. it. Yeah. I really like the the marks on the floor. Yeah, no, it's great. Of that, I was actually more interested in that as oh, it's like a big drawing device. But I will say because it's silent and it's like kind of this creepy chain clanging, and you're taking in all the visual information. But when Percy Sledge comes on, that's when you get the goosebumps. Yeah, yeah. So that's really it's cheating. It's cheating. <laughs> He's a cheater. Um, before we pivot to um, your experience as a founder and director of a gallery. And I want to ask you one last question about your work. And this is a question I've asked you before, and it might be difficult on the spot, but I'm going to give it a shot anyhow. Um, I, I, years ago, I asked you if your paintings were to make a to-do list, what would be on that to-do list? Do you want to take a crack at that? Like, is it to put the viewer on it on their heels? Oh. Um... It's hard now. I mean, now they don't re- they don't have an agenda. No, no. I do try and make. I work hard to make them be like physically and visually engaging. And I kind of talk about this all the time, where we're so bombarded every day, not just in art with Instagram and all of that, but we're just bombarded with imagery, digital imagery every single day. And like mm-hmm. imagery is just cheap essentially now. Right. So I try and make the paintings do something in person that there's no way you can experience unless you're in front of it. So that's, that's on their agenda for sure. Mm-hmm. And the materials do that where certain I'll use these foil tapes that at one if you're standing on the left of the piece, it might be the lightest thing on the canvas. On the right of the piece, it might be the darkest thing. So there's just, there's some... Depending on where the viewer's standing. Yeah, depending right, on the physical position it. of the thing. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, not, not psychically. <laughs> um, so that is important. Okay. Um, phenomenological experience. Very good. You, you, you wear a few different hats. You're an artist. You're a parent. Uh, you run this gallery. Um, can you quickly describe how you fell into being part of this gallery called Halsey McKay out in East Hampton, New York? 
Um, I know it's it's been it's on record. There's interviews and stuff, but for oh, here, yeah. like, how did you fall into it? Um, it was just a conversation without really thinking it through with Hillary with Hillary Schaffner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think kind of like you when we were starting out, there was like community stuff that happened. Like everybody kind of since we didn't have galleries or like outlets to show and didn't fit into maybe like the shows that were happening at skate shops or whatever, a lot of us hair salons or hair salons. Um, a lot of us looked for those outlets and did it like not just for ourselves. So I think the idea of like organizing shows was always fun. And then over time I just started to look at different shows and like kind of pair artists together. Just like, Oh, that would be a cool show to do if I ever had a gallery one day. Just not, not at all thinking it would happen. Like a group show. Yeah. Or presenting the work of one artist. Uh, no more. I always thought about things in groups. Okay. Um, so Hillary was that we were both kind of at really good points for it to happen where Hillary had experience in galleries. She was about to graduate from her MF. She was about to get her MFA and she had been running a space in the East Village that was pretty much running its course where it was basically the lobby of a theater that she'd been able to have act as a gallery. And the woman who owned the building pretty much wanted it to just be a lobby. So that was ending. She didn't know what she was going to do. I was curating a show for Eric Firestone Gallery in East Hampton. And honestly, it kind of started, the idea kind of started with you where it was like, Oh, wouldn't it be cool if we could do because we both because she had shown your work at that gallery, the Wild Project, yeah, Wild Project in the East Village. Mm-hmm. Um, so she loved your work, and I was like, oh, well, it's I had just finished a solo show, so I was kind of like not needing to be in studio. My head wasn't like to get right back to work like it usually is. Mm-hmm. And I was curating the show in East Hampton where we both had some roots. And I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if while I'm like doing this thing for Eric that we could do like a solo show for somebody? And like you, I think, were bitching at the time that you didn't have anything going on. Um, I never bitched. Never. (laughs) And uh, it was just kind of like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we could like find an old barn to like have Joe do a solo show since we'll be like in kind of the commerce of East Hampton. We could like maybe get people there. Um, and of course no free barn out there exists. And then once we started looking for anything, it was like, well, if we're going to pay money, why not make it something that we could maybe get people to buy things in? Make it real. Yeah. Right. And it really, I mean, if you think through, like if you should open a gallery, the answer is clearly no. Because it makes no sense financially. They're losing Um, endeavors most times. Uh, yeah. And some of the biggest galleries struggle. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not an easy business. Um, but we didn't know. I'd never, I had no gallery experience whatsoever. She had some at successful galleries. Mm-hmm. So we didn't know any better and just found a like turnkey place that wasn't that expensive. And it seemed plausible that we could like, we got a six month lease, I think. And it seemed plausible that we could make that money back in a summer in East Hampton. And that was it really. It like 
And it's been in Ignorance. operation like five years. Full five. Full five um, years. Almost six. I read somewhere someone described or said uh, if you can't sell a handful of air, you have no business being an art dealer. What's what's the magic trick to selling a piece of art? That could, yeah, I mean that's not a bad, that's a pretty good quote, but that's definitely not. It's really, a Dave Hickey quote. I'll give yeah, him credit. That's not really our approach. I don't think. Um, I think the magic trick is just you have to believe in the work. Um, it kind of happens. I don't know. For us as artists doing it, I think it's a little bit different where. We know most of the people we're showing. We love them. We want to do right by them. So, like, that comes through, I think. The work can sell itself to some degree. We try and not sell air, I guess I'd say. Um, most of what we have at the gallery is pretty tangible. I think it's strong work but we know that doesn't mean anything necessarily right um but like how did it happen did collectors like just like walk in like they were going to the that, grocery that store that did happen once um like oh uh, do, do, do. oh i i feel yeah, like too i you know i, I got i them, got my uh i got my uh, bisquick down the street now i got to pop into the art gallery and get my art for the wall um no we actually don't get many of those which i would be more than happy to take their money but <laughs> and i don't know if it's because we're not in the heart of town or if it's what we show or what but that does happen out there we just are yet to see the random tourists come in and spend sixty thousand dollars on something they've never heard of um not that most of the stuff we sell is that much, but uh, the first show, Patrick Brennan's show, two collectors who I'll let remain anonymous, who are really supportive, great people that are huge New York City collectors, walked in and bought a painting just to check it out. That's a beautiful thing. And they don't really do that. Like, they're really educated, um, but they just saw. That's a pure sale right there. It was a pure sale. Two, like, collectors that we would, like, seek out. If we knew who they were, um, what do you mean seek out? Like, do you well, you know like, who actually? Because I mean, uh, is it what? cold calling people? Like somehow getting their phone no, number? No, but or you email? just know who might who actually buys art consistently. There's not very many of them that like support what galleries like us do and artists like us do. Um, so not cold call, but just kind of be aware of and hope. And if they had walked into the gallery, we would have talked to them. Maybe different. I don't know. Uh huh. Um, so that happened. And then I think our, our location helped kind of get the name out where what we do isn't so different from like great galleries in the city, but we're one of few that helped. Um, and there are, there's a high concentration of those people who do collect a lot of art out there mm -hmm. that if you're one of 400 galleries, it's going to take a long time for them to walk in. But when you're one of three or four, it's easier. Um, and that was kind of the idea was that if now I know it's, it's not really a good thought, but the, because the people who buy like trophies don't buy our work, but the thought was like, Oh, Hey, if you're out here, like, and you're buying a 
$43 million Rothkow, what's $5,000 for a Joe Hart? Um, that was kind of the like ignorant thinking, that the money was out there and that that would be interested in what we do. But now, after doing it for a while, I know that that's not, those aren't the same people. I've heard you say, while we're talking about people that buy art, um, there's this act of buying with your ears instead of your eyes. Do you, can can you tell me what that means? Um, You've said that before, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people say that one. It means that, and I, I think it happens for both uh, cynical and altruistic and practical reasons. So it's not necessarily, or I've learned that it's not necessarily a bad thing. It means that like people are buying the work based on reputation of the artist, and that can mean that they think the value is going to increase as like speculation, but it can also mean that they think the artist is fully committed and that they're not going to stop making art in two years because the people who do buy tons of art have to contend with storage and have to contend with wall space. And it's not that they don't want something that they love, but isn't valuable necessarily. It's not about, reselling all of the time it can just purely be about like well what if what happens when i die like is this just going to go in the garbage and like the they want to know that like that artist is a committed artist and that will stand behind them or other galleries will support them just so that it can find a home at some point down the line that's like just as much a part of it as speculation is right I've sort of registered that buying with your ears instead of your eyes is another way of saying, you know, keeping up with the Joneses type of thing or something. It sort of is. Like social it, it is. Like, it oh, can be. You've yeah. got a such and such. I'm going to get one too. So because oh, that, I want to align myself yeah. with you. And that happens yeah. totally. And that is a thing. Um, but it's not all. And that is the go-to meaning of that phrase. Mm-hmm. But it's not just that. Like I've learned. Because some of our collectors. Like most like, things, it's more complex yeah yeah it's generally meant as like a disc but we have collectors that have like four or five hundred pieces of art that all had waiting lists at one point and now maybe five percent of that is like not for anything other than a yard sale right well that's the fickleness of the art market yeah um what do you think if we look at the going back to art worlds if we consider halsey mckay as a participant in the contemporary art world where is its place in the ecology of that, would you say? God, I don't know. Low. Low. I think, yeah, I mean, if you look at if you look at it as a market, um, yeah, and you look at, like, our gross sales, they're low. Well, I guess I, I was hoping to nudge you towards, you know, you're showing, quote-unquote, emerging artists mostly, right. some established. Yeah, it's a good mix now, I'd right. say. And we're not, <laughs> we're all getting uh, up there, I feel like. Yeah. The core of it is really our peer group. Right. And everybody's had a good amount of solo shows at this point and like museum stuff and like. Right. And this is, this is sort Sarah of. Sarah Greenberg or Rafferty hates the term emerging. And she's like, you I know dislike what? I'm it just too. a career artist. I dislike like, it too. Well, I'm not famous. You know, I'm not blue chip, way, but I'm an artist. It's a way for people to categorize. Which, it means price point, essentially. Yeah. Huh. Um, this is kind of a charged area, but I think it's important. You know, there's there's it's 2016. Um, 
I think the art world, uh, amongst a lot of other institutions out there, have been critiqued on their um, lack of inclusiveness in terms of having an equal shot for women, having an equal shot for people of color. Um, how is Halsey McKay um, trying to navigate that or avoid being status quo or um, address those concerns? Um, it is tricky and there's like multiple parts of, I would say, I mean, we started out as a place for our peer group and the circle has grown organically. I'm really hesitant. I think we're pretty good about showing women. We do not have a lot of people of color. Um, that you represent. That we represent, right. no. No, I think it, we do wind up showing a pretty diverse group, but um, I think it's really dangerous also. The reverse of the like exclusionary thing is exoticizing things, and that happens just as much. Or knee-jerking. No, not even knee-jerking. I think really people are like, oh, here's our cool lesbian, black, Iranian ceramicist. Like, mm -hmm. And that... Making someone that rather than the art is just as slippery. Um, but, I mean, I'm working on a show for the fall that is like, it's not a political show, but it's kind of about like how certain subcultures inform their work of these artists. And there were like, there's two black artists in it. And I was like, you can't do a show in 2016 that like doesn't include like a good portion of like people that aren't cis white right. um so it is tricky i think the women thing happened naturally i think people there are less people of color in our peer group and in the art world in general i think and oh that's changing it is changing for sure, but then it also or is... Or it's always been there and just not under the people and Or not in like a certain art world that we kind of... The contemporary... Right. Or, but then again... I'd like to think that just power is shifting. I mean, this whole election cycle. Well, it's also... Uh, there's so many things. Like, like, art schools are traditionally insanely expensive. And when you look at oh, class, yeah. I mean, you could like, go. We could go down a yeah, rabbit like, hole about why things are the way they are. And that's maybe for a different conversation, uh, so, different yeah. episode. I would say just broadly, like, we're aware of it, but we don't seek out people based on identity or race or whatever. Um, you know, I wonder, and this is also something you've talked about before, but... Is there ever a conflict of interest of, of you as an artist, as an art dealer? Um, I don't think so. I think I work really hard to make it not be. Um, and actually, someone recently had no idea that I... Someone had like seen my show and had no idea that I was the same person, hmm. um, which felt really good to me, actually. I would say, I mean, it happens. I try to not talk about myself in the gallery, and like, I try not to talk about the gallery when I'm like in the galleries of people who support my work. But it happens all the time. Like yesterday, I gave a talk at Susan's, and like, the introduction was not only is Ryan an artist, but he runs a successful gallery in East Hampton. And I kind of cringed, but like, when it happens on its own accord, um, it's fine. You know, it's who I am. It's like. We're an artist-run gallery. We're just serious. Um, but 
I never like look to like it's never like oh if you like Joe Hart you love Ryan Wallace like and because I think that would like subvert the agenda of you guys and of me right but that's not who you are no there's probably people that do that but that's not who you are as a person yeah and but but I mean I could also say that it's with the goal in mind that like I want both to be successful and if I'm like working on my own half that would just look bad like i don't know do you think being an artist has made you a better art dealer Uh, or vice versa if being a dealer made you a better artist they're so unrelated in so many ways like i would i almost think it's a disadvantage in terms of being a dealer some of the best people i think like you're almost because you're the people Aside from the really educated collectors, like so many people kind of don't know like what acrylic paint is, or like how you put that paint on the cam like that it's almost an advantage to not be talking about its place next to Robert Motherwell and to just be like, Look at this blue. Look at the way this blue This is you the art dealer speaking. Well, I don't speak like that, but I think you could be at an advantage of like just talking about the thing in terms of beauty in, ter- in like sales. I don't know. I think it makes me a better dealer, but it might make me not as good at just generating sales. Some of the best, I think, don't know much about art. Um, like good or bad. I don't know. So you are an artist, you are an art dealer, you are a parent, you have a partner that is, works in a creative field, Mm -hmm. she's a chef, Um, and you live in New York City, and it's very, very challenging and difficult to operate as those things in this town. The cost of living is going up and up, studio space is very expensive these days um what keeps you coming back why do you stick through it why why climb this mountain that is the life of an artist in new york city in 2016 um i think it's good for the kids the kind of social experiment that is new york city and access to everything that we have access to here which is also for myself, um, being like museums and music shows and lots of things that I don't get to take advantage of right now. But um, professionally, I mean, it's there's so many great venues for art. I thrive. I kind of thrive on the hustle of it. Um, I would agree on that. Yeah. Um, as as a witness to you yeah. thriving in the in the hustle, and I think you know the other day I was I went out to dinner after the book fair with uh, I went because of Chris and Maggie who run Land and Sea. There's like twelve people around this table, and Frank Haynes was like talking about I think it was about Detroit, where it was like he was talking about how he wasn't sold on Detroit because he's like, look at this. He's like, here's 14 people that are like-minded 
that just happen to be at dinner together. He's like, there's not enough people. And I don't know if that's true about Detroit, but for me, it would be like upstate, say, or East Hampton, say, or somewhere more affordable. Um, more affordable than Detroit? Oh, I don't know. Well, I, Detroit has isn't going to happen for me. I have okay. no no people there or any. It's not a likely place to land. Okay. Um, but I think I and I take that stuff for granted, and I take for granted that like my kid walks down the street and they see people that I don't know. Right. The like proximity of like human interaction and like like minded human interaction is great, both for like my art minded self, but also just for regular socializing right no so you've got all these things going on and i think anyone that knows you or that has been around you is mightily impressed with your relentless work ethic between running a gallery and dedicating as much time to that as well as to raising a family as well as to, to your own studio practice and all the things that that involves um Knowing you for as long as I have, that hasn't always been the case. I, I'd say that um, you were struggling quite hard at a certain point um, with drinking and drugs. And you made a choice at a certain point. I mean, we looked, you and I together looked the devil in the eye at a certain point after a very traumatic experience. And I, I'm not. I'm sure uh, other other people played a role too, but I noticed that you made a choice to sober up, um, and you know I know that's a that's a that's a tremendous feat and it's a struggle and all the rest. But I feel like it plays a role in where you are today, yeah. in that you you almost replaced the demons that were haunting you uh, and you trying to deal with them through, through drinking and whatever else with art and working really hard at it and learning more about it and figuring out your place in it. Um, this is just my observation. Yeah. Would you, would you agree or disagree? I'd agree with a lot of it. I don't, uh, the demons part, I don't think is too accurate. Um, in terms of, I think I'd say there's like an energy replacement where, okay. Cause sure I had demons, but like that never for me was about what drinking and drugs were. It just was awesome for a really long time. And then it wasn't. Um, and then it clearly, I'd say that my work ethic was always the same. It was just root. It just, in the end was ruined by drinking and using I guess drugs. that's what I mean. Um, it was in the way. And then it got in the way, and then I am It was motivated. holding you back for yeah. sure. And if, when I finally recognized that, that I wasn't cool with. Like, as much as I could romanticize the, like, bullshit of being the, like, drunk artist struggling, um, I wasn't down for it to get in the way. And it was definitely getting in the way. Mm -hmm. And then I do think, because I do hear a lot that people are like, ooh, how do you do it? And it really is that all that energy is just now directed towards these enterprises. Because right. it doesn't seem hard to me. Um, it's just kind of how I'm wired. And like all that, like it takes a lot of energy to get fucked up every day. Right. 
and then that's still there. It's just not directed there. Right. It's just um, hard not to acknowledge on the timeline. Oh, for the sure. The moment no, that for you sure. stopped. The other thing that is really you important. You got married. You had, you had a kid. Right. You, your career out. started to Cash get momentum. Prizes. You got traction. You opened a gallery. You started helping other artists out. For sure. You started building social capital for yourself. And I guess that goes back to like the the exchanges between being an artist and running an art dealer like you have a tremendous amount of social capital now because right of that. but all that started to happen after yeah no it definitely did those dark that dark moment definitely did and as much as it is a part of like getting my shit together and having my head clear the other thing that happens with kind of getting sober is that that is at the forefront and you kind of can't care about everything else where at the time I was so consumed with like, how do I get this or how do I get that? And like, that's just kind of the way my brain works. When and those concerns are still there. They're still there for right. sure. But I did, I stopped caring almost where I was like, yeah, whatever will happen will happen. I just got to get this shit in order. Um, and that kind of, I think through that comes through a like confidence that lets those things fall into place. So it's, and just maturing as a person. Yeah. Um, but there was really a like where hopefully I, hopefully we're maturing. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. Um, there really was a point with all of that came as much as it kind of looks from the outside that it's like okay now you can like work towards these things clearer or better. It really was also letting go of caring what happened, and then it happened. Mm-hmm. Where at the end there, I was really like clawing for like some kind of recognition or like whatever. And it was in the way of the work and, like, just a fucking mess. And, like, now it's just easier. And that comes through, I think, like, you know. It does. And I think those around you notice it. And I felt compelled to honor that part of your life and talk about it and acknowledge it as really important. And I'm grateful that that you have helped me out as much as you have. And I know I'm not the only one that feels that way. It's really inspiring, Ryan, what you've done. Thank you. um, With, with your work, with your family, with running this gallery. I mean, you have, you have really, really helped people um, get to a better place with their work and their life and, and keep them going. You know, I I can speak for myself, but um, you know me, I I think seasonally, I feel like, what the hell am I doing? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a tree falling in the woods. Does anyone notice? And then I talk to you or we do something at the gallery or right. a sale comes through. I'm like, oh, OK, uh, you know, it, it, yeah. there's something there's something. And that like that is such a gift right. that, that I need to honor it, man. Oh, and I need to you. thank you. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> Works good. Um, at, at the risk of sa- sounding sappy and sentimental, but um, this is life, and this is one of the many reasons why I'm taking on this little project here is to for to sure get to these important real things. And I would also say, with this project for you and the gallery for me, to that tree falling in the wood scenario, it's like I don't have time for that. That's the really nice thing about the gallery, aside from the day-to-day of like loving the work and loving living with the shows, it just gets me out into the world where like, you know that I would just work in studio for 16 hours a day and not talk to a fucking single person if I could. 
and it makes me not able to do that where like I had a job before like I think uh, a lot of young artists and myself for sure I thought that like not not having a job was like really the goal or like not having anything other than your practice to like generate income was the goal and while like that's really important to me now like I'm really happy that I have the gallery not just for like potentially financial reasons but also just because it forces me to get involved with other people right having having multiple projects going on yeah sort of feed each other or keep us busy or keep keep those those quiet moments if they're not healthy for us away and um, it selfishly it helps my work because i if i work like that in studio it just ends up in these like circles that don't help the work get better where when i'm forced to leave it makes it more energized when I'm there. It's pretty cool stuff. Um, I feel like that's a pretty good place to start wrapping things up. Before we end this, I got to ask if you like what's coming up. What, what do you want to plug? Oh, um, well, my show at Susan's is up through October 15th at Halsey McKay. We have Ben Blatt solo show Annalise cost solo show in East Hampton and on Henry Street we have a David B Smith show and I guess well this might not come out for a while so yeah I, I say mean that, um, I'm still in beta mode yeah but. so I'll be in a group show at the UNLV Museum in January in Las Vegas in Las Vegas yeah I think it's the Marjorie Barrick Museum you're gonna go to it probably not Vegas January seems hard for our yeah, life yeah, yeah um yeah. coming up in east hampton we'll have a group show curated by sarah vanderbeek and sarah greenberger rafferty called her wherever at henry street we'll, we'll have a ben blatt show that's an extension of a show in east hampton um i'll do a solo show with romer young at some point in 2017 i think that's all i know right now that's quite a bit yeah you're a busy man Yes. Uh, I just thought of something else real quick. Are goals important to you? Uh, sort of an ender. Sure. I don't know. <laughs> you don't know? What's the goal? The canon? No, I don't yeah, know. I mean, I, I want to like, show it in this city, or I'd like to make a piece this big, or I want to oh. get this artist in the gallery, or I want... Yeah. I, I mean, want, I want all I want Halsey things. McKay to grow into this, or... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but they're all just kind of in the back of my mind at all. It's like I want all of those things, like probably and more, but I just really deal day to day with like the day to day of operations is pretty demanding. So I know, man. I don't have too much. What is time it about us? We can't think more than like a week ahead. I think it's good because you don't want to be too focused. It's dangerous. It, it's irresponsible. No, I think it's good. I think it's better because I think if you set up those stepping stones, it's just like potential feelings of failure. It's like soft goals and hard goals. Or there's some term about that. Like what's ach actually achievable in a week versus the reach. You also have no idea, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Halsey McKay became Gagosian or if it closed in six months. Like, oh, you man. just don't know. No, it's not going to. <laughs> um, it's not going to. Cool, We're man. doing well. Um, but you know what I mean. It's just there's yeah. no way to know. Like Sometimes goals are a setup. If I got hit by a bus, it probably closed. Or like, right. Hillary and I were both in a plane accident. Um, you just don't know. Yeah. But and the day to day is so demanding that like, but I want all of all of those things to be very successful. Right. 
Well, thanks for doing this, Ryan Wallace. And, you know, it's extremely awkward talking into a microphone yes. in this context. <laughs> and it takes a certain amount of courage and openness and trust. So um, really, thank you for doing this. And, yeah, um, my pleasure. to the end. I hope that you found that conversation insightful. A quick reminder that listeners can learn more about this project and the artists featured here by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. Thank you for listening and check back soon for a new episode.